Growing your business is tough, but don't worry, we've got you covered. We interview industry experts on how they've solved their most challenging business problems in SaaS or e-commerce. No fluff, just step-by-step playbooks to help you dominate your market and crush the competition. This is the How We Solve podcast. Here's your host. All right, welcome to another episode of the How We Solve show. And today we have a guest that I'm super excited about having. We have Fred Reichelt. He's the creator of the Net Promoter System uh, of Management and the founder of the Bain & Company's Loyalty Practice. And he's the author of five books, including the New York Times bestseller, The Ultimate Question 2.0. He's co-author of the book, Winning on Purpose, The Unbeatable Strategy of Loving Customers, which is going to be released on November 30th. And Fred, I'm so excited to have you here. I just mentioned this before we started the show that you massively influenced the way I'm, I'm doing business or the way I think about business. My business partner initially introduced Net Promoter Score to me. And I thought, yeah, it's cool. You have this metric that you can measure something, but it didn't really click with me. And then I saw you speak at a conference and you completely blew my mind that this is actually a way of running your business. And then I read your book, The Other Question to it. Oh, and then I became obsessed with NPS. So thank you very much for creating this. And thank you very much for extremely influencing all of my businesses. So. Thank you. And it's a pleasure to be here. And I'm super excited to learn about your new book, which is not released, so I haven't read it yet, but I'm definitely going to get it. Enlighten us. What's winning on purpose? In some ways, winning on purpose is the result of so much adoption of Net Promoter around the world, and which is a lovely thing. Fortune magazine uh, reported last year that over two-thirds of the Fortune 1000 now use Net Promoter. And I, and I think it's probably approaching that in small and medium businesses and entrepreneurs, which is wonderful. But the, the negative is so many people are misusing it and, and even abusing it that I wrote the book to help get that, the business movement back on track. We made it open source at the beginning so that people could adopt and uh, experiment and innovate. And that has driven adoption and, and, the, and the best practices are extraordinary. I never could have imagined so many effective applications. And yet many people have gone down the path of linking net promoter score, a survey-based score to frontline compensation. And, and they use it for accountability, which seems fine, but it's really a very flawed because the instant you do that, it's just a matter of time until your frontline employees start seeing this as it's all about the score and they they stop caring as much about learning from the feedback about how to better serve customers and innovate ways to solve customer problems. And when they just care about the score, you get things like, remember, Mr. Customer or Ms. Customer, it only a 10 is a passing grade in our company. Or I know we didn't do well, but, but I need my job and I have kids at home that need to eat. So please, we got to have a 10. We'll deal with these issues on the side. And it's wasted time and it, it communicates to the customer the opposite of the net promoter philosophy. Net promoter means treating customers so well, they come back for more and bring their friends. But when I care about the score, it, it's a selfish thing. It, to, the customer gets it. They just, you want a score, you don't want to help them. And then that is run out of control. Now companies even report their net promoter score to their investors publicly without any understanding or appreciation of which customers got surveyed and when and what was the response rate and how was it asked and was it right after a transaction or 
these things that can influence this. He could swing the score by 50 points. And Actually, so it's time for a new book on this subject. Awesome. Maybe to give people who are not super familiar with MPS kind of like the 30,000 foot view of what it is. And I can attempt to this to do this. And then you can correct me if, if I'm filling the, the gaps, basically. So you serve your customers, uh, ask them the question, how likely would you recommend a product or services from zero to 10? And the nine and tens are people who love you, they're your promoters. The zero to six are the ones who hate you or that had a very bad experience. And the seven and eights are the passive. And then based on this, you can make a calculation, which then gives you the actual score. And the cool thing is you can really measure how things work and you can slice and dice it. Actually, what, what you mentioned, there's different ways how you can use it. For example, you can use it transactional. So after every support question that has been asked, or you can do it periodically, like after six months or once a year, which gives you more an overall view on how the overall feeling is towards the company versus the after transaction. It's just like, how do you rate this person or this interaction that I just had? And the critical thing that I left out after they give the grade, you ask them, why did you rate us this way? And this gives you really deep insights in terms of what the nines and tens, like what is the stuff that we have to do more of and the zero to six, like what do we have to fix or how can we make them happy? But more than a score, it is a philosophy of business that our purpose, why I call the book Winning on Purpose? Because people, they don't get the purpose of a great business is to enrich the lives of customers, to solve their problems and to put, turns frowns into smiles. And if that's your primary purpose, then you need to measure how often you're succeeded and failing and, and to manage that process. And so net promoter, I almost called it net lives enriched originally, because when you touch a life, you either enrich it or diminish it. And, and, and I think good people want to make lives better. So this net lives enriched got to the core. I called it promoter because I thought it was a little more businessy and practical, but maybe I should have kept it with net lives enriched because then people would understand the purpose. I love that. Make makes so much sense. I don't know if this is from your book or if or I read this, but if you treat your customers right, it's not only morally the right thing to do, it also makes a lot of financial sense because they stay longer with you, they become promoters, they send you more business, etc. And you've kind of really figured this out, then You'll always win over the over the competition because you have a you can pay more to acquire a customer because they stay with you and they bring their friends. You know, so it's like just just makes so much sense. And also, not only taking you know measuring your customers' happiness, but you can also measure your employees' happiness, like employee net promoter score after the onboarding. How do they feel to correct things there? Or it's extremely powerful. A lot of practitioners do ask their teams how likely you'd recommend this is a great place to work. And it's the same idea and it's very powerful, but always have that follow-up for open text verbatim that lets people say why and how you can get better. And in their own words, as it's so much easier to deal with structured data. So you want to have surveys that are 50 questions. and Gives you some charts. But yeah. yeah, it just makes it easy to do regression analysis, factor analysis. But if you really love your customer, you wouldn't waste their time with that rigmarole that's designed to make market research easy. It, you would just ask in their own words, how can we get better? And that's the power, it's the simplicity. But then of course, it means reading their comments and taking action. And so closing the loop is something the best practitioners will do 100% of the time with detractors, because there's just no excuse. If, if your purpose is to enrich the lives of customers, 
and they give you a score that says, no, you had diminished my life. That's the ultimate failure. And to ignore that or treat it as some statistical aberration, no, you call and apologize or email, but close the loop, figure out what went wrong and, and fix it. And, and also closing the loop with a sampling of passives and promoters is a, a wise thing to do because it keeps you connected to customers and hearing their voice and getting deeper into the conversation gives you a, a much richer understanding of what's important to them and how their problems are evolving. I think I could nerd out for another three hours with you on NPS, but drill a little more into your new book and how to get the spirit into people's heads. Or in, I guess, I assume I haven't read the book. Is it about how to create the culture that people understand that we have to enrich people's lives? It's a lot about culture, but it starts with this. I think most companies have a flawed understanding of purpose. We asked uh, 200 executives around the world, what's the primary reason your business exists? And only 10% said it was to make their customers' lives better. The think of that, only 10% would have what I would consider a net promoter philosophy. And the vast majority, it's either maximize shareholder value, or even some people say, make this a great place to work. And I think they're influenced by the great resignation that's going on. And the biggest number just, it's some balanced duty to all of our stakeholders and we're accountable to be nice to everyone. And there's some truth in that. You treat everyone up to this golden rule standard, but that loses sight of why you're here. What's your main mission? It's to make your customers' lives better. And I think it's because we don't measure it rigorously. We measure financials. So we measure profits and things that lead to shareholder value. And that guides our governance, our budgeting, our compensation, everything. And it's warped people's mind into thinking that profits is purpose. And nobody who's any good is gonna commit to that as their life's purpose. Did you read Conscious Capitalism? Because you mentioned like a lot of people just want to increase shareholders' value. It's just about the idea of a business is to make the owners of the business rich versus the business can actually be the best vehicle to have a positive impact in the world. And while doing that, actually even be, being more profitable and successful than the others that just focus on purely short-term gain. Yeah, Raj Desodia, Raj, who wrote that book, Conscious Capitalism, was over at my house uh, a few weeks ago. We are chatting about this exact subject. There is a huge overlap there. I think what Net Promoter brings to that movement is first a metric that is the focal point. There are a lot of measures in the world, but you got to pick what's the top of the hierarchy. And if enriching lives is the top of the hierarchy, then you ought to have something like a net promoter, because recommend is the highest standard there is. It, you don't co-brand your personal reputation with a brand or a team unless you're willing to take the risk and you they've met your values. This is the, the right kind of company, as well as economic value. So that's why it's such a high standard and can help me move forward. But there's a second thing I'm proud of that winning on purpose brings to life. I've tried to clarify the economic flywheel that drives economic prosperity in companies that really do love their customers. Because when customers feel that love, they come back for more, they bring their friends, they trust you enough to share their real problems with you so that you can help solve them. And that's the flywheel, coming back for more and bringing their friends. 
a free Salesforce and free everything that your customers now are members of your business community who want you to succeed. You can't beat that. It's just now total. We looked at winning on purpose. We looked at the total shareholder return of all the companies that I'd used as exemplars in my previous book as net promoter leaders in their industry. And their total shareholder return was about triple that of market. And it's enormously successful for investors, but you got to know what the flywheel looks like so you can actually manage it. And that's where I think winning on purpose. It brings the moral, ethical, just, you know, several chapters are, have ones on the golden rule and how people misunderstand it. But other is on total shareholder return and how this customer focus actually does drive economic prosperity. I think I, I read in the briefing that there you have a EGR earned growth rate. This is basically something that you explain in this book, how to measure this. And I'm curious if you can share the formula or how this works. It's one of the most important advances in the book. We've struggled for over a decade trying to convince people to stop linking your scores to frontline teams and holding them accountable. You get in trouble if you're in the bottom quartile or we'll humiliate you or that has led to this obsession on the score, not caring, not loving your customer at all. But my preaching hasn't stopped, I think, very many people. So I said, I have to have some other metric that is appropriate for accountability. It's not a survey based metric, which has response bias and sampling bias and all the statistical challenges to get a reliable number. And it's probabilistic. We need an accounting metric that's audit worthy and it's, it's based on cash flows and earned growth rate is simply that twin metric for net promoter that's based on accounting numbers. And in the simplest idea, it just says how much of your business this year is the result of its customers who were with you last year coming back for more and referring their friends and reporting that. So I'm curious, what's the best practice in terms of to get this reports like on the sign up form, like a field that says, how did you hear about us? Was it through a friend or a customer or a friend or who it was? So like, how do you map this back? Because I'm um, actually, I talked talk to somebody about this last week that I'd really like to understand how many of our customers actually bring in more and we can measure stuff with affiliates, tracking systems and stuff, or like, you know, invite a friend things in, in software as a service products. It's a common thing. But yeah, I'm curious, like, how, how do you solve that? There's two components to earn growth rate. The first is a little bit simpler. And as you indicated, it's already used in industries like software as a service. It's called net revenue retention. And you can figure out what your net revenue retention rate is. Just look at all of your sales this year and you figure out how much of it came from customers who were with you last year. It, it's that, that simple an idea. That's the back for more part of the equation. Then there's the bring their friends, the referral part, which is not done in 99% of businesses today, but in my opinion, must be done. And the best way we've found, and then this is an evolving science, but at least we have one very practical approach as part of the onboarding process when you bring in a new customer and get their credit card or credit, whatever you get information from them, their address, just ask them one question. It's what's the primary purpose you chose to do business with us or you selected us. You can get the language that's appropriate for your industry and give them a 
simple range of common answers, including referred by friend or colleague, or reputation, I think is another that I consider earn, or helpful salesperson, convenient location. These are bought. You have to open the store. You have to hire the salesman. And then have an open text one. If, if you don't have, it's on your short list, let them tell you what the reason was. And that helps you evolve this list to make it easy for your customer. So you want it frictionless. You don't want any bias, but you want people to tell you if the primary purpose, primary reason they came in was a referral. And, and then keep that as part of their file. You could do analysis and say, you know, customers that came in as a result of referral, they tend to stay twice as long and they buy three times as much and they give referrals twice the rate of these other channels through which we're getting our customers. All these things we've been talking about, you can you turn it into a science and start managing it. So that's the process. And I think com some companies will be able to do it even better. We, when we've piloted it, we have found the strongest businesses are getting 90% of their new business, primarily a referral. And the weakest ones are getting less than 5%. Wow. Think about what an amazing difference that it's on economics. Warby Parker is the uh, glasses company. I don't think they're international yet, but certainly they're, they're a big factor in the U.S. They just went public. So Warby is up there close to 90% of their new customers say that the primary reason they've joined is a referral and reputation. And you, you know, I think there's like, A, they have a good product, a good price, good service, whatever. But I think there's another component in there that makes this so extreme because it's something that sits on your face and people ask. The same thing when you have swag, when you give out good swag, and that people ask, hey, this is new or what is this, et cetera. Then, you know, the stone age old thing that people like to refer good stuff, then it's the conversation starter that they actually hear about this brand from, from somebody else. So I guess kind of they have this, this advertisement swag model built into their product. You know, so I guess that's like kind of why they're also far ahead from, from the pack. Yes, you're right. No matter what the product is, if or service, when there's something that remarkable, something remarkable happens and you've just been treated with kindness or it's a wow feature or use case, you, you tend, that's what you tell people you care about. Not just because it's news, you want that for a loved one. A referral, it's an act of love. Not for the company, for the person you're referring because you think it would actually help make their life better. And they, it's generating that energy. And, and I think something Warby does that's not well known is that every time you buy a pair of glasses, they give a brand new pair away to someone in need. And that act of charity, it doesn't really, it's not famous enough. So they tell you when you get your glasses, they have a little thing that explains that. But what I find is it makes their employees so proud to work there. And, and when you get your employees connected to your purpose and energized, that's when they go the extra mile and innovate and go and, and do special things for customers. So that's the, the connection between employee loyalty and, and loving customers. That's amazing. In, in terms of loving customers and in terms of sales, I want to tell you a story that you may like. I'm a recovering introvert. I used to be super introverted. And I realized, you know, I've been an entrepreneur for over 20 years and it was holding me back massively. I was even uncomfortable on conference calls and selling something. I always felt like a used car salesman. I hated every second of it and, you know, felt like shoving, shove something down somebody else's throat that they don't want. But when I did Toastmasters and I did, went to lots of networking events to overcome the shyness, but the real 
change happened when my yoga teacher said every decision in life, you have to make it of love or out of fear. And if you make it out of love, you're on the right path. And if you're on the wrong path, and if I sell out of love, if I sell because I know that this product here is a really good product and it's going to help you in your life and your business, I can be even be a pushy salesman and say like, Fred freaking buy this. It's going to be amazing for you. And you will feel where I'm coming from. You will feel that I have your best interest at heart. And then you're going to buy way more likely versus if I sell out of fear. I only sell because I have to hit my numbers. I have to, you know, have to get the net promoter score or I get in trouble. I have to, if this is coming out of fear, then it doesn't flow. Since then, this has been my mantra and, and everything that I'm doing. And yeah, I could talk about hours about this topic, but yeah, just wanted to share this with you because I think it's, it really fits into the ethos of, of what you... Your yoga teacher is, I don't know much about yoga, except I'm not very flexible. <laughs> Every time I try it, I'm reminded I need work. But the, the philosophy that every decision in life is made out of love or fear, that is a powerful idea. I think I agree. And Net Promoter is based on love. It is making this a better world for your, you know, your happiness is derived through you creating happiness in others. That's what love is, I think. And yes, this is just measures it. And so much of the world is based on fear. Even I was chatting with someone yesterday about why is it so hard to make Net Promoter flow the way you'd like? And I said, a lot of companies get into this mode where you get in trouble if you get a low score. So everything is focused on fear. And it just stops the learning process. It stops innovation. This happens occasionally. But if you're in a fear environment, then you fixate on those, what's not perfect about the system. And if it's out of love, you just take the better and move on. Two, two other things you may like with this love and fear thing. So in my last business, we grew very fast. And then we had like internal communication issues. One department didn't know what the other one was doing. So I told her like, hey, please write an internal newsletter, go to each department head, figure out what they have to say, and then compile this and we'll send it out on every Monday. And every time she gave me the draft, it was like very poor, lots of mistakes. It was just like, it was bad. And I sat her down and said like, KD, you're doing this out of fear, not love. And she looked at me like, what do you want from me? And I told her that if you do this out of love, you do your best to really understand what each department head has to say. Even what our CTO has to say, she was not super technical. And you would compile this in a newsletter that everybody's looking forward to receiving, you know, write it with some jokes and fun and just make it really good so they love receiving it. And then you do it out of love. But you're doing it out of fear because the only reason you're doing it is David said this thing has to go out Monday at 4 p.m. Right? And after I told this, we never had to, had to correct anything. It just flowed afterwards. Another thing with, with the culture of fear in all of our businesses, of love, not fear is one of our core values. And we're kind of doing our best to, to live this. We have, we have an error log. So every time we something goes wrong in the business, it can be bad NPS score, can like any mess up, every customer complaint, everything we put into our error log. And then we just, and this error log is like, you know, who was affected, which departments, is it solved and which SOP do we have to change so to make sure that this never happens again? You know, so we really welcome every mistake, every mess up, because this gives us the opportunity to fix things, to make the system, make the machine better. So nobody gets in trouble for committing any mistakes. Everything's good, but you get in trouble if you don't add it to the error log. So this is something that has been working really well. Too. Yeah, that's a great example. Any, anybody in the software business recognizes how important that error log idea is because you got to fix bugs and make them get to the root cause and solve them or the, or the system will just uh, collapse. And if you go beyond the software as an engineering tool, 
if you think your error log includes any time your product or service touches a customer and it, it gets a net promoter detractor score, that is an error just as bad as a bug in the software. And you have to jump on it, get to the root cause, fix it. Don't blame people. In fact, you blame people. It makes them less likely to be honest about errors. It, that's a that's great analogy. Yeah, I think it's software. Like the culture is also a software that runs inside of your organizations and you kind of want to just like have methods of, of fixing, fixing stuff. Yeah. You're also releasing it on Audible or first the print version? I wanted to read it uh, myself, but the people who have the Audible contract want to get a professional reader. So it'll be somebody else's voice. And they actually did my last book, The uh, Ultimate Question 2.0. So very skillful guy. And I'll look forward to hearing it myself. In terms of culture and the, you mentioned it's, it's also about culture and like, how do you get this mindset into the organization's culture head? Yeah. The golden rule is a really powerful idea. Love thy neighbors, thyself. Every religion has a different way of saying it. I consider it the highest standard in human affairs. It, it, it is how you evaluate relationships and how to do it perfectly. And uh, I think most people just misunderstand it. The first thing I point out in the book is everyone thinks they get it. But if they do, why do you encounter this kind of treatment so infrequently in this world we live in? When someone really does treat you with loving care and kindness, it's no, we, you talk, tell your friends, it's a wow of it. Usually it's sort of a dog eat dog, you know, the, I commute on the mass turnpike to Boston and man, I'd say one in a thousand drivers acts like the golden rule as part of their personal uh, lifestyle. And I try to lay out what it, if you're going to build a community, a business that operates on the golden rule, you got to fix a number of obstacles or challenges that are constantly getting in the way. And I lay out what those are and how the great companies have solved them. So I do think it's a philosophy. If the golden rule is going to be your standard, then here's what you need to have thought of in advance, like anonymity. You won't get an honest answer between a boss and a subordinate. So you got to give a little distance and anonymity. It's very threatening when someone gets feedback, constructive feedback. And so you got to give them some space to process it and know they're not in trouble and think about it. One of the cool software devices is instead of a boss picking out the customer service call that was great and the one that was bad, you have AI pick that and, and route it to the customer service rep. And they just listen to it. There's no boss involved. They're just listening to a, a place where they, where the customer felt the love and where they didn't. And what a cool way to learn. And it recognizes that you really have to give people plenty of safe space to receive and act on feedback. So I think not infinite, but there's a list of things that you need to put in place. And then I, what I spend a lot of time, a full chapter on is given that we measure everything on financials, that creates a, a current, a river, a, a torrent of incentive to do stuff that's not the right stuff. It's necessary stuff. You have to make a profit or you'll go out of business. But because that's the only metric, that's the constant force that, that employees are feeling. And to make culture and golden rule behavior equal to or even stronger than that, there are a set of systems I've seen people put in place with huddles and feedback based on values 
And I tell the story that the way I get it out is I have a koi pond. I'm into symbolism. The koi is the ancient Chinese symbol in art for persistence and perseverance because they evolved in the mouths of rivers, freshwater rivers. If they were washed out into the salt water, they die. So their entire life, they're swimming against the current. And to help your people swim against that current, which is driven by financial measures and pressures, you have to give them equally effective systems that get them going in the right direction. I, I think it's time that businesses step back and address that. Because right now you've got 90% of the workers and leaders who believe that customers are not the primary reason that river is flowing. They think the river flows to profits. Look at what we pay attention to. I think one way on how we're doing this in my business is we tell a lot of core value stories. So whenever somebody comes, when they even when they sign the contract with us, the last pages are our core values and they have to initial next to each core value that they're going to live up to this. Right. Then every month we have a meeting with all the new people that joined this month where one of the leaders or I go through all the core values and tell core value stories and explain our mission, vision, where, where we're coming from. And a concept that you talked about is bad profits in the, in the ultimate question. And doing the stuff that hurts your profits, you know, kind of doing the stuff that actually hurts you, you know, in short-term thinking or in this standard thinking of, of profits, removing the bad profits. For those of you who are not familiar with it, for example, when the car rental company charged you 5x the gas price when you fill up your car afterwards, this makes them money, but also makes customers hate them. If you actually do remove these things that are pro-customer, but kind of hurting in short term, the company, if you do these things, then people will understand like, hey, they actually care about this thing. I didn't have one, one core value story that we have with, this, with customer success. When I bought one of the businesses that I have, it's, it's a lead research business for cold outbounds and, and, and self-development jobs. And we had a customer that has been paying us for two full-time lead researchers for a year and a half without giving us any work. I'm like, if you would have stayed quiet, I would have probably done this un until the credit card runs out or whatever. But I thought, this is not customer success. We're here to set customers up for success. So we reached out to them and they have been like always emailing them once a week. Hey, do you have no task for us? Do you have no task for us? But no response. So I kind of, you know, reached out to everybody to CFO, CEO, et cetera. And the CFO got back to me like, holy cow, what the heck's going on? And it turns out this person that was managing these two researchers left the job and they didn't kill the email account. So the email was still going into Nirvana. And the CFO was like, okay, I want my money back. And said, like, sorry, I can't really give you the money back because we actually had these two people just twiddling their thumbs and doing like some random stuff for us. But what I can do is I can give you the time back. So basically you're going to get a year and a half worth, of, you know, these two people for another year and a half. And they actually end up um, using us again and then ramping up to five researchers. And also this actually turned to like a very profitable customer, even though this could have meant kind of like shooting ourselves in the foot. But it kept telling these stories makes people understand that they can actually come to us when something is against our core values, even though it may hurt in quotation, you know, air quotes, the company that they can do the stuff to just do the right thing, basically. There are a number of examples in Winning on Purpose of companies that got new leaders that came in, uh, companies that's full of bad profits and, and all of the anti-customer policies and fixing those in ways the accountants would think will make you go bankrupt. But in fact, they turned it to monstrous successes and, and 
the highest total shareholder return in their industry. T-Mobile is a great example of uh, a company that was really struggling, the, the weakest in the industry, lowest customer satisfaction scores, the weakest network. And John Ledger came in as the new CEO and he, he told his people, you know, we really just have our, our customers and it, that's our only advantage. And we're going to love those customers more than, uh, better than anybody else can. And so we, they, they went out to their customers. They went out to the frontline service reps and said, what are we doing that is frustrating you? And they fixed it. And so they got rid of roaming fees. They got rid of contracts. They got rid of everything that was and all these bad profit things. And um, customers loved them so much that they are now the best net promoter score in the industry and the best total shareholder return over the decade. But it's not, not just T-Mobile, it's, it's company after company. Because you don't see this flywheel that's really driving success, which is based on love. Because businesses don't measure love. They don't measure referrals. They don't measure repeat purchases really rigorously. And so they have a mindset that moves toward anything that makes profits, which is extracting value from customers. If it's legal, let's do it. <laughs> that, of course, is a hateful, abusive thing to do to customers. And, uh, and they don't trust you. So happy customer tells their friends, unhappy customers tell, tell, tells the world, you know, and with social media, you can tell and review sites, yeah. et cetera, you yeah, know, you can true. like easily just, just destroy you. And of course, employees are mm. embarrassed to, um, implement these kinds of policies and you're educating them that no, we don't live by the golden rule. We don't love our customers. We love our mm. bottom line. I mean, how could you possibly justify 300% markups on refilling gas tanks or the crazy roaming fees that you were hit with, how could you justify those as loving in any way? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, bad profits. Just thinking about like, if we have any hidden bad profits in our, in our businesses, but like, I can't really think of. I think a good thing, a good discipline, ask your customers and ask your employees. And uh, you're, if you're doing net promoter right, you're already asking your customers wh why, what's making you unhappy if they write something that looks like a policy that is, uh, and then ask your employees that same thing on a, let's say a quarterly basis. We have, one of our core values is fun and harmony. So basically, if there's a customer that's really annoying, we will remove this customer. Also, if we have team members who are like not fun and harm harmonious to, to be around, then we, we remove them because, you know, the idea is, you spend so much time at work of your life. So, you know, it has to be a fun and good environment and treating customers right as part of this, this fun and harmony. You know, you can't like just abuse. Yeah, I have dozens of those examples in the book because I agree. As a leader, you're building a community and members of the community, whether it's employees or customers or, or anyone, investors, if they are abusive and not living by the values, even after they've been alerted to that, they don't fix it, they really have to go. And that's the lovely thing of a business is voluntary associations. You have to earn the right to continue being a member of the community. Initially in my previous business, I always had the mentality of like business is like family, but it's hard to fire your uncle if he, if he's an idiot, you know, but I have like more of the sports team analogy, A players want to be with A players and, you know, still, of course, having all this, like, you know, caring for each other and caring for the customers, but it's more sports team. If somebody's not pulling his weight, we got to reposition them into another 
place in the business or stop working together because it's just not fair towards the others. It's also not fair towards the customers. It's not fair to the, the overall community yeah. if somebody's not pulling their weight. Family sounds good. And, I, and there's a lot of warm things in family, but nepotism is family and that's bad. So I, I think the difference between family you've pointed out in a, in a business, you really have to earn your stripes. And what makes people happy at Bain, we've done a lot of research on, you know, what's the one question or the one statement that gets to the core of explaining why teams are happy or not happy at Bain. And it's, it, it's basically this, if people feel like I'm a valued member of a team that wins with its customers. Agreement with that statement explains 85% of the variation in happiness across all our teams around the world. And I think it gets the core idea. To be a happy employee, you have to be proud of, you know, you have to recognize for the value you bring to the team that is winning for its customers, which is a higher purpose that's, that's an inspiring purpose. It's not selfish. Absolutely. And if you have this, for example, a friend of mine, it's a company called Global Brigades. They send students to like South America and Africa. And for example, if you study medicine, then you become a, you go on a medical brigade and you, you help people there and you get credit at the university for, for doing that, right? Yeah. It's insane how many people he sends. It's a really large organization and he only has two full-time employees. Everybody else is a volunteer because they do something that is, you know, providing value. People just, you know, they rip their arm out to, to being, being part of this, right? So if you have like an inspiring culture, mission, vision, um, or just do good by people, then people want to be with you. They also, you know, would work for you for, for less pay. You just like to kind of be being part of this versus working somewhere at like some solos company where they would make more money. You know, because I think deep down, once you can pay for your life, it's, it's much more important that you do something meaningful, purposeful versus just like making more money. And it's like, I think people are waking up more and more to this concept and also voting with your wallet is like something that people kind of realize that this is the only voting power that we actually really have. And so you kind of vote for companies that do good in the world, you know, kind of people switching away from Uber to Lyft because they were treating drivers bad or whatever, you know, I think this is also becoming more and more a thing. And so your book will be even more applicable and, you know, you make more profits when you follow this, love your customers and do good by them. Yeah. The best way to make your life better is to hang out with good people. And that's what companies can, can make. They, they can be the kind of place that good people want to hang out because they can treat each other uh, right and make a meaningful contribution to a team success at, at delighting customers. I really can't wait to, to get my hands on your book or on, on the, do you know if the Audible version will come out on the same date on November 30th or? I don't. I've tried to find out myself. I think the Kindle and uh, the hardcover will get released. They've actually, because of printing issues, they've pushed it to December 7th is now the, the release date. There'll be a Harvard Business Review article out in the November, December edition. They'll give some focus on net prom on earned growth rate. But I think we have to wait until then. But I'm hoping that people will be happy. I noticed the other day that at Amazon, among new releases, this book has been number one at strategy and competition and a couple of other sectors. So I'm cautiously optimistic. We'll, we'll see what happens. I mean, you, you, you should, you should be optimistic. I know a lot of people who are like really big fans of the ultimate question 2.0 and they'll definitely just like blindly buy the next book that you put out there. So this one is better in my, in my opinion, this is the most important work to date. Cause I, I 
finally, I understand a lot of things I only half understood previously. Before we wrap up, I'd like to ask you, because we always do like snippets on YouTube of like a how-to question. If you, if you could explain what is earned growth rate, even though we had this before, but if you could explain it again, so we have this for this clip. I learned many years ago from Andy Taylor, the, the, the fellow who built Enterprise Rent-A-Car from a tiny little leasing company in St. Louis to the largest car rental company on earth that the only way to do such a thing is to treat customers so they come back for more and bring their friends. Earned growth simply measures that rigorously with accounting audit worthy statistics. How much of your revenue and your growth is derived from customers coming back for more and referring their friends. And I think that, well, I believe that should become the accounting twin for net promoter score and may be the best indicator to investors of where they want to invest, to customers of where they want to buy, and employees where they want to work. Thank you very, very much for being on the show. How can people find out more about you or reach you? Look on LinkedIn. I have a series of a newsletter series there and been active. I also recommend the website netpromotersystem.com which Bain hosts and will have all of our uh, most recent research and coming events. So th those would be two suggestions. Awesome. Thank you very much again for, for being on the show. People look out for the book, Winning on Purpose is coming out early December. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. And please give us a, a review on the Apple iTunes store for the podcast. We really appreciate this. Again, Fred, thank you for everything that you've been doing and you're currently doing, you really impacted my businesses and I'm very grateful for having Is your e-commerce growing so fast that you can't keep up with supporting your customers in real time? Serve them better in any time zone and language. They will thank you with higher conversion rates and repeat purchases. We build and manage your own dedicated customer experience team of live chat and support agents. Get started today. Visit ltvplus.com. That's ltvplus.com. Thanks for listening to the How We Solve podcast. Dominate your market and crush the competition with our step-by-step -step playbooks. Subscribe right now in your favorite podcast player or visit howwesolve.com.